You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to American Muse Podcast, where we explore hidden secrets in the landscape of 19th and 20th century American Your host is Dr. Grant Gilman, conductor, violinist, and author based in Atlanta, Georgia. In each episode, Grant unearths a fresh orchestral work by an American composer you may not even know. And by the end, we hope you are a new fan of the composer and their music. Now, your host, Maestro Grant Gilman. So, our guest today on American Muse Podcast is a Grammy-winning conductor, music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, music director laureate of the Virginia Symphony Orchestra, where I happen to have met her, uh, principal guest conductor of the Brevard Festival, and recently appointed artistic advisor to the Cleveland Institute of Music Orchestra. She has guest conducted many of the most prominent orchestras in America, Canada, Europe, Asia, and South America. That list is getting... Um, it's harder and harder to leave things off of that list. She's the leading recording artist for Naxos and won her most recent Grammy in 2019 as conductor of the London Symphony for Spiritualist by Kenneth Fuchs. Uh, additionally, she served as principal conductor of the Ulster Orchestra, with whom she made her proms debut and recorded six highly acclaimed Naxos discs, including a two-volume set of the orchestral works of John Knowles Payne, which is a favorite of mine. Uh, she is a member of the esteemed American Academy of Arts and Sciences, has served as a member of the National Council on the Arts, is the recipient of many of the most prestigious conducting awards, and was named Performance Today's Classical Woman of the Year. COVID-19 limitations permitting, she can be seen on the podium of the Buffalo Philharmonic this season, and hopefully other worldwide orchestras. Um, and believe it or not, that was the short version of the bio. So, <laughs> Joanne Folletta, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Grant. It's great to see you again and great to have a chance to chat. I remember our chats in Virginia, how much fun they were. Yeah, always at Chocolage, or most of yes, the time anyway. Yeah. And uh, before and after they moved across the street. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, those were good times then, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, and now you move on to something, to other things, bigger and, uh, and more developed all the time. You just, you don't stay still. <laughs> well, you know, although I have to say, I mean, I, I, I was traveling a lot, but since March, I mean, since actually uh, our concert in Virginia was canceled, you know, really at the last moment because of the virus, uh, yeah. it's been 
it's been you know very much quieter than I'm used to. But right. It's been good in its own way, and certainly it's given us a chance to plan for the future too, and to see what will happen. Right. So, so yeah. So when we spoke over email, you mentioned that that the Buffalo Philharmonic is actually going to start up. So yes. what what that seems that seems pretty uh, striking to me. I mean, considering you know at least news wise, what has come out of New York ever since this started. What can you tell us about that situation and how everyone came to the decision to? move forward. Right. Well, actually, in, in New York was the epicenter of the virus, but uh, thanks to our governor, uh, Governor Cuomo, who's been very tough, very tough on, on lockdown in New York, and uh, the, this, we've gotten, we've gotten in a, to a much better place. And Buffalo, of course, is not close to New York, so it's a, it's a different environment. But um, it was very important to the community, I think, that we keep playing, and very important to keep our musicians employed and playing. Um, so we, Grant, if you can imagine, we started the season. I mean, w- our season was initially a very big one as normally. And, you know, we're trying to use all of our 85 people. And and uh, and I, start, I had to keep changing the repertoire. And so I probably have gone through about 12 or 13 permutations of the season. And we are starting quite small. Uh, and this is for safety. You know, we've got, uh, we're really, really being careful. We're starting with 20 people. Um a mixture of strings and winds, and uh, we've planned for that 20 to take us into December. And then hopefully from December on, we can begin increasing in size. Interesting. Is, so, is it the same 20, or is it like kind of like a rotating 20? No, it's a rotating 20 and also uh, different different instrumentation, uh, mostly strings, as you can imagine. But we're also trying to do um, pieces that are winds only and all kinds of different things that uh, uh, we probably would never have considered uh, given the kind of orchestra we are uh, normally. Right. Uh, but in a way, I think I came to a very important turning point for me when I uh, stopped regretting what we couldn't do this year and started to get very excited about what we could do. Don Barton Oaks by Stravinsky. Um, you know, the, later in the year, Gina Stera, uh, Variaciones Concertantes, things that we might not do because they're smaller. Um, right. And that seemed very exciting. All of a sudden, we could do those things. So... So we're starting out with that and then gradually getting bigger, of course, with, you know, with the, with the guidelines that, that we have. But uh, it right. just it feels so good to get back, get back to it. I mean, we already had a couple of we recorded three concerts for streaming and it just felt so good to be on the stage making music. So, so that's good. We feel like we're getting through it now. We're starting to. Right. Right. I mean, and it's it's good that that Buffalo's, you know, I mean, Buffalo seems like it's been uh, healthy or more healthy, you know, orchestra uh, business wise than than a lot of other orchestras anyway. Unlike, I mean, Nashville just kind of ended all of next season. And while that obviously has has a lot to do with COVID that but it mm-hmm. seems like because not every single orchestra is completely folded up for, for the following season, there's probably something else that was going on there that, that this just kind of tipped them over the edge. I think it is complicated. I mean, we have certain advantages here in Buffalo in that uh, we manage our hall. So uh, we, we have complete control over our hall, which has really helped us. Um, And it's, and we are, we don't pay for our, our use of the hall. So uh, that maybe is a single luckiest thing but the community has always been extremely supportive of the orchestra we have a very very active and strong board and a great executive director with Dan Hart and I think that 
all of that, when, when we got to this crisis point, gave us the, the tools to get through it, or at least to get through it, or to, to plan to get through it, you know, right. we will. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess all you could do at the moment is make a plan and then blow it all up as it goes along, basically, you know, depending on what happens or doesn't happen. You That's can go right. forward and then if it doesn't work out, then you do something else. <laughs> right. And, you know, we're starting, we're starting cautiously and we've got, you know, lots of, lots of safety things in place. We've bought a lot of plexiglass and uh, uh, very careful about spacing with the musicians, very careful about cleaning. Um, but it, it seems to be working so far. So. Right. Right. No, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll find a way to do, to do something and keep, and keep, you know, afloat. Uh, even us, even for us in Alpharetta, I mean, we've been talking about, okay, we're going to survive this year somehow. That's, that's what we're going to do so that when it's over and whatever the world looks like afterwards, doesn't really matter. So, so your programming in Buffalo and Virginia, and of course, anywhere you've guest conducted, you've included American composers throughout your career. So was that a, a specific conscious decision at a particular moment, or was it that something that came about over time? through all of that programming or was it like a strategy? No, it, it really developed very, I think very organically by, by my time in school, because of course, as you um, did, did as, uh, when I went to school too, we, we studied the great masters, you know, as, as conductors, we weren't studying new music. Really. We might study Stravinsky, but we weren't studying <laughs> new music. Uh, but it being in school, being at Madison, being at Juilliard, we were in the middle of composers, uh, you know, they were our friends. And, and I remember all the wonderful friendships I had, Richard Daniel Poor, Kenneth Hughes, people that are still a very, uh, I'm very close to. And the idea that they needed advocates, you know, became very clear and that they, you know, were also willing to have a young conductor do their piece. They were thrilled to have a young conductor do their piece. And, and um, I, I thought, well, you know, that, that I want that to be a part of my life. I want, I wanted to be part of my life to help American uh, composers develop because they needed that. They needed those performances to go on to, to their next step. So I think it really developed partly out of friendship, partly out of, of the excitement then of working with a live composer, which I thought was maybe not being a composer. I thought was really spectacular. But I could have the composer next to me and I could ask him a question or her a question. Right. And maybe change something up or change, you know, this articulation here or change, take out the trombone and put a horn instead that we can actually be part of the creative process. I could be part of the creative process with the composer. I thought it was wonderful. I, it really made a tremendous impact on me. So it just became a very natural part of my life. And, and I thought, you know, why not Americans? Because they're, they're writing in our vernacular uh, they are our neighbors. They live in our city. I mean, that, it seemed to me that that was something that, that uh, wasn't, wasn't uh, a responsibility. It was a joy. I mean, it was just a great thing to do. Right. And maybe even at the time, maybe you didn't realize you were joining a long history of trying to carry that, that torch of like, well, yeah, we all learned this European foundation. But at the same time, then America rose up historically and then the people that were here made something else that's right that's yeah right. and 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 like you said if it was organic in that way then then you didn't realize it but then you just took it on and now and now you've become a hero um, well now, now it's so it's so much a part of my my life that it's it's um 
it's something that I love. And of course, you know, these long-term relationships when like, especially with Ken Fuchs, who, you know, I remember conducting his graduate recital, I mean, his, his graduation recital in Juilliard. <laughs> and now to go with him to London Symphony and to be with him when, he, when the Grammy was came, it was, it was so, it was just so gloriously joyful. So, so, um, and it, it's great to see audiences too, over the years that I've been conducting, I've seen audiences really become more open-minded to new music. In the beginning, you know, they'd always think, oh, you know, well, we really came for the Beethoven, but but now I really think audiences are coming for that mix, you know, the new piece, right. Beethoven, or or something they've never heard that's not new, but they're interested in it. So uh, that's been a large part of, of how I think about programming now. Um, so in a, in addition to the new and the living music and the living composers, you, you also obviously have a large repertoire of American music from 19th and 20th century um, it works far less played, sometimes completely forgotten, and even less of the time recorded for public consumption. Uh, so you've become, you've kind of cornered this niche, especially for recording. And w- was there a particular composer from that, that earlier era that, that began that journey, that, that kind of piqued that interest for you? Or was it more of a collection within the genre? Well, it was, I think it was partly a charge from Noxos too, because when I, when I uh, began to work with the Buffalo Philharmonic, Noxos reached out to me and they were interested in the orchestra and having recordings from the orchestra. And um, knowing the sound of the orchestra, knowing their environment and the kind of hall they had, um, I thought early 20th century would be a great time frame for them. Uh, but Noxos charged us to find things that, that were not known. And at first it was like, oh my gosh, you know, it seemed like a, a daunting prospect to find all of these pieces and to record, but it became just like a labor of love. I mean, there's so many pieces that, that we found and recorded uh, that now maybe people even, even have become familiar with. So, so I, I think that was, a, that was a great charge from them. And, and it happened to be, it happened to fit my way of thinking based upon, you know, my, my sense of, of believing that not everything that we don't know everything that's good, that there are a lot of good things out there. We don't know. So that was, it was great, great uh, to work with them. And I remember in one of the earliest CDs we did with Buffalo was uh, uh, Charles Tomlinson Griffiths and uh, Griffiths grew up in Elmira, which was this fairly close to Buffalo. I would say maybe a little under two hours away. So, right. so there was a sense of, well, why not? I mean, this is this is one of a composer who who grew up in the same sort of region that we're in, uh, and um, when I started to discover his music, it was so thrilling for me because there's not really, um, at least that I don't find there's not really um, a American impressionist music of a sort of pure type, except for him. I mean, he right. was really writing American impressionistic music. And in his short life, uh, you know, the, the, the small amount of music he gave us is, is quite perfect in that way. Um, so I just fell in love with it. And that was really one of our key early, early uh, CDs. And, uh, and we went on from there. Not always American. I mean, often European uh, music, Central European especially. But um, it's been a great adventure for the orchestra too. Right, right. So, so with Griffiths, with his... With his- impressionistic characteristics um what is it i mean for i had a similar experience i mean i didn't i haven't made any recordings but like when i would hear griffiths i was like well this is 
it's hard to tell the difference between Griffiths and, and Debussy and kind of Ravel, but Ravel has his own thing. But what is it that you think actually differentiates him from from them, from Debussy and Ravel as as representatives of the entire French impressionistic well, era? You know, he obviously he loved Debussy and Ravel, so they are his big influences. But I think he also uh, he studied with a German, great German composer, Engelbert Humperdinck. Right. So I think that um, there's a sense of of in some of his music, like the poems of Fiona MacLeod, for instance, and even in the you know the other larger pieces. Um, I think there's more of a Germanic texture there. But then there are some pieces uh, that are just like, you know, not even touching the ground. I mean, they're so light. Um, the White Peacock, for instance, is a piece. Right. Just, it just floats. Uh, it could be Debussy. Um, and who knows what it would have become, you know, because, again, he was just, this tragedy of, of Griffiths is that he was just, just achieving a sort of recognition, really, in the year before he died. Just, he was like, at, at last, I think Pierre Monteur took a great liking to him all of a sudden. And you can understand the sort of sensibility there. Right. And would have he would have gone on to possibly be one of the most known and lauded American composers. But he died, actually, he died in the flu epidemic. He died in the Spanish flu epidemic. So right. it was very sad. But um, uh, it's it's just amazing. I mean, the, the, the CD we made was, was something that we just... We loved it. I don't think many of the musicians knew the music, but um, uh, the Pleasure Dome I've done a lot with other orchestras as well, and right. it's, that is that maybe is his biggest um, uh, his biggest structural work. But uh, the poems of Fiona MacLeod are quite extraordinary. The poem for flute is also quite extraordinary. So right, uh, I, you know, I found that interesting with all of those those pieces on the on that uh, CD. They are all poem based and they're all textually based and they're, you know, they're a very impressionistic thing anyway. And the only one that's not is the poem for flute. But of course, he calls it poem for flute. Right. So, so still, still, anyway, it's got this sense of like being this, this French, like, yeah, there's a structure, but not really. And, yeah. and in that way, he fit right into that whole period in France, don't you think? Because they there were the poets and the musicians, you know, at the same salon talking to each other. I mean, Debussy's Afternoon of a Fawn actually comes right from a poem by Mallarmé. So, I mean, they. I think he he's he's found some American poets that he loves, and and he's in, either inspired or actually uses their their words. So uh, that must have been a big part of his inspiration. In, um, Right. I think it's very precious music. I mean, we have so little of it, and it's so special. There's nothing really that that is quite like that. So, so I'm glad that we were able to do that disc. Right. Um, so since we're we're kind of comparing them, Griffiths died in 1920. Debussy died in 1918. Now, I want to make it clear: I am not compare. I'm not equating Griffiths and Debussy. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but. It's it's kind of obvious. I mean, while Debussy is a household name, Griffiths is a footnote in music history. Unfortunately, um, yes. Yeah, and what 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 are the possibilities for that for that happening? I mean, we you just you had just said earlier that you pointed out that we're we have this. I mean, maybe this is towards towards part of the point, but still to this day, we go to music school 
And we like 99% of what we learn about is, is uh, a very small time period from a very small area in Europe. And that's it. And it's still only a few of those people, those composers. And it's the best music that's ever been written. It's not all of it, but it's still, it's some of the best music that's ever been written. But then we get people like this. Okay, he's not a Debussy, and he didn't live long enough. Maybe he might have been. But what what is it that makes him nothing now? Well, you know, I think a lot of it is is our own American inferiority complex. Now, maybe that maybe that's going away. I don't know. But but I, I know growing up, there was always the distinct feeling that if it came from Europe, it had to be better, whether it was a piece of music or whether it was a, a conductor or a, a soloist. Yeah. It had to be better because they knew somehow they had, a, they had to have a much longer tradition, of course. And the United States in 1920, or let's say those, those two decades, are just starting to find its way in a music that is really American. When when Dvorak came to this country, you know, a decade before that, in the late 1800s, um, and he he's he's trying to teach Americans how to write American music and by l- looking at their folk music and listening to music of the people, um, he he's he's finding people here who don't know. I mean, they're writing music based upon. Mendelssohn and Schumann, because those are their heroes. So at that time, I think American composers weren't taken very seriously. I mean, they might have been played and and uh, and applauded, but of course, the real music probably came from Germany. That's how how people thought about. Right. Uh, so he had that working against him. He had a short life, of course, working against him. He was uh, a teacher. He wasn't in New York City. He wasn't in the in the um, maybe the milieu where he could have made more contacts. He was teaching in White Plains or Terrytown, and it was just far enough from New York to uh, maybe not have those contacts. In fact, this this kind of miraculous discovery of his by um, uh, uh, the conductor, uh, uh, the French conductor, is is, is sort of. Uh, uh, just something that 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 happened. I mean, it just it could have he could have easily been totally obscure. So right. uh, you know the fact that Pierre Monteux was about to give gave performances of his um, was almost like a fluke. So, but I I think we live with that that kind of um, sort of uh, feeling that Americans didn't really know. You know, it was might have sounded nice, but it was not Beethoven and. Uh, you know, maybe that's maybe that's going away, but I still think it's still with us a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess even in context, it was a little bit still before there became an a quote unquote American sound. Right. I mean, there was, and even with Griffiths, I mean, we're we're easily flowingly comparing him with Debussy, and Debussy also was called an impressionist while he was alive, and he rejected the label, which right. of course sounds. That sounds accurate to everyone. <laughs> right. Every genius in the era that they lived, they were like, I'm not that. What are you talking I know. about? <laughs> um, well, that's just the way it is. But, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I suppose it was, as you say, there was a lot, America was just finding its way. I mean, there was going to be Copeland finding his way with, folk, with American folk music and brilliantly doing that, brilliantly right. doing that. And Gershwin finding his way with melding jazz again, organically just you know a perfect perfect natural uh, marriage of this um and griffison is is because he admires those uh, composers so much as finding another voice and maybe the country doesn't really know what is american music we don't know I mean, even today though i mean it's 
composers are writing in so many different styles. Right. Right. Maybe that is, maybe that is American music. It's that it's not pigeon. You can't pigeonhole it in any time period. That's true. Uh, that's that maybe it. Uh, I wanted to go back a little bit to what you something you'd said earlier about um, the the Buffalo audience um, in relation to this this and the the living new music and the and the slightly older. Um, there was this 2009 Naxos interview with Stephen Schaefer, and you said uh, due to marketing and perceived audience preferences, it is easy in the United States to keep programming the core repertoire but it is very exciting to offer unusual repertoire to the BPO audience who in turn have very enthusiastically received it. Now I could not agree more with the first point that, you know, the accessibility of the Canon is both a blessing because it is, it is the best possible music. And then at the same time, it hinders that diversity of programming because, you know, we have to keep the lights on and, and we have to keep, the musicians employed and and there's so much money that has to go into it. So people aren't going to come to hear if the only composer on the program is, is Charles Griffiths or anybody like him, nobody's going to come to that concert or, or they're going to be reticent to come. Or, or if you start showing that that's your programming or you're picking out these obscure composers, regardless of what it sounds like, you know, people, you know, those donors are going to be like, well, what are you doing? Well, it, it is difficult. You know, in Buffalo, we had a slight advantage in that for uh, we had a couple of music directors, Lucas Foss especially, who was uh, very avant-garde and really on the cutting edge of new music. And to the point where Buffalo became like the epicenter of new American music. Uh, and I, and he was not, it, none of it was easy listening at all. I mean, his music was really, his, everything he picked was very thorny, very difficult. Um, but the audience... D- built up a sort of respect for, well, you know, we are, we're, we're doing something special. You know, we're, we're introducing new pieces. And Michael Tilson Thomas also had a lot of very sort of uh, wide ranging interests in new music. So, so the background was there. And then um, I felt that we, we had to, we had to introduce new music to them. Now, I wouldn't do an all Griffiths program as beautiful as I think that music is. And when we were recording it, we did a lot of Griffiths that year on the program. So, uh, but I think that um, slowly audiences have come to say, oh, you know, I, yeah, I loved, I knew I was going to enjoy the Mozart Symphony, but I really loved that, that new piece or that piece I never heard of by Vitislav Novak or even John Adams, you know, because they, they are seeing it in a different context. So, right. And, you know, Grant, I think it's the wrong idea. A lot, a lot of marketing directors say, okay, let's ask the audience what they want to hear and they'll send out a survey and then they're always surprised when they get pieces like Phantom of the Opera or Valley Four Seasons or Paco Belcanon. Well, it's, it's not fair. You're putting the audience in a in a position of of having to do research. They're just coming up with this piece they know they like, and and it it seems like a silly thing to ask them. Why don't we come up with pieces that we think they'll love right. and introduce them to them? You know, rather than than only relying on the few pieces that they remember. And I, don't, I think the audience would say the same thing. I mean, you're the experts. Show us something good, you know, show us some new music. So I, I hope that's happening all over the country that, that we're integrating uh, either new music, which is very important, or unknown music from the past. So do you think that, that the, the Buffalo audience is particularly unique and that they've, they've embraced this? Or, or is it, is it like you said, like 
like people, you know, not necessarily just the conductors, but the conductors included, the people that make these programs every year after year after year are are maybe unable or unwilling to acknowledge that audiences are like that, that they're willing to take on more new stuff as long as they're satiated with something else that they do already know. I, th- I think you're right. I think that sometimes we're underestimating the audience. If they think, oh, they'll never come if we put it. Well, we did a whole evening of Richard Daniel Poor, two hours of a piece by Richard Daniel Poor. Who's going to come to that concert? They came. You know, so, so sometimes we're thinking that, uh, oh, no, they'll never accept that. But if you've built up a trust, if the audience trusts what you're doing and they figure, well, you know, I remember that, you know, two concerts ago, there was a lot of new music. I didn't think I would like it, but I found it interesting. Then they're likely to come again. And you need to do that. You need to do that. I think that really the, the worst thing to do is to find those top 20 pieces and keep doing them every year. <laughs> so... Now, I found it quite interesting, that, that, but not at all surprising, that you also have a 2012 Naxos recording of orchestral works by Duke Ellington. Yes. And as certainly not a regular composer in the orchestral canon. So how did you come to decide on these pieces? And by the way, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, take the A-Train, Black, Brown, and Beige, and Harlem, they're, they're all pretty much what you'd expect from, from Duke Ellington. And, and they're, they were more... I, I think they were more or less, they were transcriptions, they were arrangements for orchestra. But but to be honest, I had never heard Three Black Kings or The River Suite, and they are they are like a, an intellectual integration of what what Gershwin was doing. And, and it, but it doesn't sound like Gershwin at all, but it still sounds like Duke Ellington, but it's he's he's using the orchestra like it's he's used yeah, he and yet it's still jazz. Well, you know, I think he just was so so uh, loved as a band leader and, the, and and what his band played and those tunes, and they're great. But he himself was much more than that. I mean, he wrote opera. I mean, he's he's writing things in his own way, but he wrote opera, he wrote ballet, he wrote choral music, religious music, um, orchestral music. I mean, the, the Three Black Kings, uh, to me, is, is just... It's just, it's an astonishing piece of music and black, brown, and beige. Yeah, yeah, we you know we did them in in a couple of these in um, in versions that are that um, that are somewhat of you know kind of manipulated, let's say, by Maurice Perez, who was who worked with right. with um, uh, great knowledge of the score to make them more playable for symphony orchestra. But um, they are great pieces. They're just great pieces. And I think we wanted to show that, that, that this is orchestral music. We didn't really do transcription with the exception of Take the A-Train, which was not by him, but, you know, his theme song. Uh, they're, not really, they're not really arrangements, but we had to do that. The A-Train is an arrangement for orchestra, but, but, but these are really, he was envisioning these pieces as concert pieces on the stage. And hmm. it takes him out of the realm of great, you know, band music that people love to dance to to something on a different level and he deserves that. So we're very glad to do that. Yeah. I mean, that also seems to make sense along with the, the Naxos vision, which is yeah. to like encourage this and, and, you know, spend resources on things that they're not non-existent, but they're far less known. And, and certainly in this case, like you said, like I, I mean, I knew that that was there, that element of Duke Ellington was there, but I don't think I'd ever, like, explored it. 
no. So, but you, know, you have to have, you sort of have to hear it enough, and and then when someone hears the recording, they're more likely to call up the Buffalo Philharmonic and say, "How did you get that music?" And we can tell them how to get the music. All of a sudden, they do it, right. and that makes it easier. So that's one thing that recordings do for us is that it makes it much more accessible to someone who's not a conductor who doesn't want to spend the time looking at the score carefully, just wants to hear it and say, you know, we should do that piece. And I think that's great. So Noxus has really, has really opened the door to a lot of new music. So you mentioned earlier um, also, you know, uh, along with Naxos, you mentioned earlier Richard Dandenpoor, um and your most recent recording course was the passion of the yeshua yes and that seems like it was an enormous undertaking both times <laughs> there it was, was the was. At the bach festival and the, and then again in buffalo and i i can't i can't imagine um what, what was that it, it like is, taking all of that on it's an enormous piece and richard will tell you that he's been thinking about this piece for 25 years at least of his life of doing this because of a mixed background that he has partly Christian, partly Jewish, partly Arabic. I mean, and, and uh, uh, it's been something that's been sort of gestating in his head. Uh, but it's it's an enormous piece. I mean, it's, it's a two-hour evening of, the, of this music. And uh, uh, it's based upon, of course, you know, the, the, the last day in the life of Christ. Uh, but he does some things that are quite different. First of all, he wanted to get a real sense of where this was set because the whole life of Christ, the whole Christianity has become very Europeanized, became very Europeanized, and that's the way it's presented. But actually it goes comes right from, from the, the Jewish man that Christ was and all of his traditions and the landscape around him and his language, you know, speaking Hebrew. So, so right. half of it is in Hebrew and it's really moving. And you get the sense of that uh, we are close to his life. We're not hearing the story of his life. We're sort of living his life. Right. Um, and also something that struck Richard, and, and this is why he wanted me to, to conduct it, was in every passion, uh, women have not had a voice. It's always been men who are telling this story, and yet the I thought women, of that actually, yeah, women, that I mean that makes sense. Yeah, they're suffering through this whole thing. They're, right. They're, in some cases, they're the only ones who don't run away. So um, uh, he he has two major roles for women. Of course, the mother of God, Mary, the mother of God, and uh, Mary Magdalene. Uh, who has there's various views of Mary Magdalene, but we know she was close to Christ uh, and and a disciple in a way. So so they play a prominent role. And he chose uh, two African-American singers for the Christ and the mother and Mary, the mother of God, uh, because he felt that as, you know, as Christ becomes, uh, uh, evolves into who he's meant to be, uh, he becomes disenfranchised. All of a sudden people are, are suspicious of him. And so this sense of uh, not being accepted, he thought that was a level that he wanted to introduce in many cases, which in over the centuries, African Americans have felt that a feeling of not being of being on the fringes and not being in the middle. So, so it's it's a stunning piece, and Richard has a great gift for writing for voice, and the choral music is spectacular. That's all I can say. It's it's just hair raising. So, I think you mentioned it was life changing. I mean, th- I noticed you said that, and I was like. I mean, you you have a plethora of experiences that could be called life changing for many people, but that's what you called life changing. Yeah. And I thought that, that must it be. It was, you know, I, for me too to see to see the passion in this context in this in this kind of uh, 
much more open context to hear things sung in Hebrew, to hear a Kaddish sung at the end after Christ's death, and and just to be in in a different environment was was very uh, sort of opened my mind to things that I had learned as a child, of course, in religion that all of a sudden were different. And I think that's what Richard wanted. And ultimately, and I'm not sure that this this uh, was achieved with everyone, but ultimately he wanted to give. Christians and Jews, the feeling that we all come from the same place, and this, this we, we all group around this man, this the, uh, Jesus Christ, and and uh, we we have so much more in common than we think we do. So for him, it was a bringing together. Uh, in in the in the context of today's world, where there is so much anti-Semitism and renewal of anti-Semitism, which is yeah. horrific on a horrific level. Um, there was some fear in the Jewish community that even setting a passion could incite that feeling. Um, but, um, you know, I think in, in Richard's voice and in his words that he spoke to people about, the opposite was true for him. It's bringing people together. And he does it. I think he absolutely succeeds. Well, I mean, the fact that, that you did it twice, and, it, and and I know that it's been at least done a couple of more times, like that that pretends that it's going to be done again and again, maybe not with, with, you know, a high regularity because it's, it's such an undertaking. There's got to be, I don't know how many people, but it is, it's like, um, I was talking to somebody else about something similar, at least for the chorus anyway, a chorus that's going to take that on. That's got to be like a two year commitment, at least as far as planning. It's, it is, it is. And we actually had two choruses. We had our own Buffalo Philharmonic chorus, um, who worked very hard on it, and the UCLA. UCLA sent their chorus. Uh, Richard is teaching now at UCLA, and they actually sent their chorus to sing with us. So that was very happy to, to you know, the sort of very right. disparate groups. I mean, Buffalo Philharmonic Chorus is a group of, of amateurs of all ages, but uh, uh, UCLA, of course, were all students, and it was tremendous to have them doing that. So I, I it's really, it's an experience that, that um I think once you live through it, you you think about you think about that part of what happened and what in the world at that time very differently. So, are there any other recordings on the horizon, notwithstanding the pandemic? Well, we have one that's about to come out by a French composer that you might not know well. His name is not well known, and it seems a shame because he's a fantastic uh, composer, Florent Florent Schmidt with two T's, not Schmidt, the German, mm. um, a composer really living around the time of Debussy and Ravel, but lived much longer than them. He was very long lived and his music of tremendous difficulty, color, uh, perhaps a little more Germanic than the, they were, you know, but still very French, but um, adding that to the mix. And so that's exciting for us to have that come out. We have so many plans of recording more Kodai and, and Lucas Foss and all of these things, but you know, we haven't yet, we have to take them off the schedule now. And we'll put them. Yeah. Off. Right. Right. You got to wait. So, so I, I guess one last question on that, the, the technicality of that, because I'd known a little bit about what Naxos does or doesn't do, but are most of, if not all of of you, these recordings, do they originate from, from live performances and then you patch them 
with with extra no, rehearsals? Well, they're always done in studio after the performances, but we do oh. rehearse and, and perform them first. And that that I think is great because we we live with them for that whole week re- rehearsing. We give two or three performances of it, and then the next day we go we come back to the hall and and then record it. Uh, yeah. But we've lived through a few performances of it, and that really helps. That really helps. And, and I mean those those sessions they must they must. <laughs> They're not really uh, musically based sessions to to make a recording, are they? I mean, it's it's kind of picking it apart and picking it apart, and it's very different. You know, we have a we have a producer who l- lets us play in big swaths, which we like. But but it is it is it's a highly focused approach to music where you're you're it has to be perfect, and so you'll go over the same spot three or four times, and then play a little bit more and. Um, uh, it requires a lot of attention. It's actually exhausting. Musicians are, are totally exhausted afterwards. Um, but um, but it's different skill. But I mean, in the end, it's about the music. So um, it's you know music that we love, and we're trying to to perform it. Um, right. And uh, and our producer helps us with that because he knows that's that's better for our orchestra to be able to play, not to go note by note. So. <laughs> right. Right. Well, thank you, Joanne. Um, I'm sure we'd be able to do this again, I guess. Uh, uh, I, I'd always enjoy it. I miss our talk. So you just yeah. tell me. When. <laughs> uh, you've, you. you've got a few more uh, uh, American composers from this little niche that I'm trying to concentrate on. You've got them in your back pocket. So I'm sure we'll we'll pick I'll out another one. Thank you. <laughs> well, you stay well, you and Kim. And uh, I hope I see you face to face. I'm sure I will. See you yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Definitely, definitely going to get back to that. Well, thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you. This was great fun. Thank you. If you like what you have heard and want to support the advocacy of American orchestral music, please consider signing up to donate regularly at patreon.com for our continued production of this podcast. Also, subscribe for updates wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.